Our epistle reading is from Colossians in the first chapter, verses 1 to 14, and I am reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have heard of this hope before in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you, and just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made it known to us, your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. We pray for you. God, we come before you this morning privileged to be people who do walk in your light. We ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning with the word that you mean for us to hear. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our two readings this morning are really a tale of two communities. And in the words of Charles Dickens, one of those communities in Colossae really is experiencing the best of times, while the other community of ancient Israel is facing one of the worst times in its history. The reading that Janet read from Amos is a difficult one. It's difficult to understand, and once understood, it's difficult to make sense of but it's an unavoidable part of the story of God's relationship with Israel. Over the past few weeks, you may recall that in our Old Testament readings, we've heard the names of Elijah and Elisha. These two prophets had the unenviable job of addressing the kings and the leaders of Israel and saying to them, if you don't change your callous and unjust ways, there are gonna be some consequences. And while a few weeks have passed in our lectionary or in the readings, a few years have actually passed in the story, but Israel hasn't changed a thing. They've had years of relative peace and prosperity, but the systems of exploitation and injustice that Elijah and Elisha railed against are still in place. And if those prophets had the job of warning the people that a storm was coming, Amos's job was to point to the rising clouds on the horizon and say, time's up. Amos uses the imagery of a plumb line to deliver this message of judgment. A plumb line is a cord or a string that has a metal weight attached to the end of it. And when you hang it from a particular point, 
it tells you exactly where vertical is for that point in space. So if you were building a building, a plumb line was an important tool for making sure that your walls were straight up and down. And if you're building community, then a spiritual plumb line suggests the need to ensure that the structure of that community is straight and true. Into the community of ancient Israel, Amos says, God has dropped a plumb line and has seen not only that the structures are deeply faulty, but that they're really beyond repair. Consequences are no longer somewhere off in the horizon. Because of Israel's failure to respond to God's words of correction, the consequences can now no longer be avoided. Now, Colossae, our second city this morning, receives quite a different sort of message. Scholars are divided over the issue of whether this epistle, epistle, Colossians, is genuinely of Pauline origin or whether it was written by an early follower. So its date of writing is somewhere around 50 or 80 CE, depending on how you fall on that issue of authorship. But either way, the letter is unique in that it was being written to a community that the author really hadn't met and hadn't had much interaction with. Our reading this morning was really the greeting section of the letter. And it was customary for the greeting to give a sort of outline of the material that was going to follow in the body of the letter. So we might think of this as a good introduction. So what was this message to the Colossians? Bear in mind that this was a first century community still figuring out what it meant to be faithful followers of Jesus. These Christ followers were living without access to the gospel stories that we know so well, because those gospels were just being written around this time, but in different places. So the writer addresses words of encouragement and advice for how they might live out this new calling to be followers of Jesus. Unlike ancient Israel with its faulty walls and broken systems, this community is just in the process of being built. They have an opportunity to align themselves to the plumb line of God's intention and build structures for themselves that are straight and true. And they're given a blueprint for this building project. First, the author says, be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Let God's love and grace fill your life. This isn't something you have to earn. There's nothing you have to do to receive it. This is the unmistakable reality of grace, that there's absolutely nothing that we can or need to do to earn our salvation or earn God's mercy toward us. It is woven into the fabric of creation. You are accepted, you're forgiven, you are included, you are loved, period. This is a powerful foundation on which to build a community. It's a foundation of love, not of fear, of hope, not despair, and of joy, not anxiety. This is God's will for us. Second, the author says we are told to live lives worthy of God. We've received grace, so we're called to extend it to others. We are accepted as we are without having to earn God's grace for ourselves, so we are called to accept others without forcing them to earn our favor. We are loved unconditionally, so we are called to extend unconditional love to others. We are included in God's beloved community without regard for our personal attributes, so we are called to be about the business of extending that kind of radical welcome to others. This is how we lead lives worthy of God. In as much as we have received, we give. And by this, the author continues, this is our third thing, we will bear fruit 
in every good work, as we practice our love, our acceptance, our graciousness, our inclusion, we are training our insides. We are learning to act more like Jesus in all of our dealings with others, and we find then that we are bearing fruit. This is what John Wesley very boldly called our pursuit of Christian perfection. And Wesley, who was never one to mince words, he described this as receivable by mere faith and hindered only by unbelief. I would suggest that it isn't quite as easy as he makes it sound, but our entire commitment to Christian discipleship really is predicated on a belief that we can attain this Christian perfection in our lifetime. This is how we respond to that knowledge of God's limitless love for us. Fourth, as you bear fruit, you grow in experiential knowledge of God. I think this is a really cool idea, but it kind of flies in the face of the way that we think of things in our modern world. We would never suggest to someone that just because they have driven a car around for 10 years, they are somehow qualified to become an auto mechanic. And we wouldn't tell someone that just because they've taken prescription drugs for a while, they could become a pharmacist and start handing out prescriptions to other people. In our modern world, knowledge usually precedes action. But this time, we're told, action actually precedes knowledge. Get out there and start practicing what you do know about God. Pretty soon you'll discover that you're learning more about God as you do good work and you bear fruit. Practice doing what you know you're supposed to be doing. Train up your insides to bear good fruit, and the knowledge will come. Fifth, be made strong with the strength that comes from God, that you might be prepared to endure everything with patience. I think there are two great points to be made here. First, the author talks about strength. There is no greater feeling of strength than when you are secure in the knowledge that, in whatever way, big or small, you are doing good work and bearing fruit. And as I was thinking about this this week, the person that came to my mind was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I love, from time to time, to go back and listen to his speeches and sermons, and no matter how many times I listen to the same speech, I always get a chill up my spine at the phenomenal strength that just always imbued his words. I would suggest that he was a man who knew to his core that he was clear on God's will with regard to civil rights and nonviolence. He was committed to living a life that reflected that knowledge, and he was called to do the kind of good work that would bear fruit in that community. Strength flows into and out of people like that. I believe Jesus affected his hearers in the same way, which is why 40 or 50 years later, the writer of Colossians still has so much to say about the importance of following Jesus' model for a healthy community. But I do think there's a second point to be made here because this strength that comes from God, we're told, is there to enable us to endure everything with patience. There's no promise that things will always go perfectly. There is no promise that we will be spared difficulty and suffering. There is, however, a promise that this strength will be sufficient to usher us through the darkness back into the knowledge of God's love so that we might continue that cycle of doing good work and bearing fruit. Sixth and finally, the author says, joyfully give thanks to God who has enabled you to share in this beloved community and experience love and grace and acceptance and mercy and strength. 
The author of Colossians concludes with a final note that I believe is important for us this morning. He writes that God has rescued us from the power of darkness, some translations say from the authority of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of Jesus in whom we find redemption and forgiveness. And I think this is interesting imagery because power and authority are kind of nebulous and figurative concepts. Power and authority can expand to fill as large an area as they're given. But a kingdom is a concrete area ruled by a particular leader. God has transferred us out of the diffuse authority of darkness into a unique and particular community that claims first that Jesus is our leader and second, that we have a viable blueprint for creating healthy community. The quote on the front of your bulletin this morning claims that whatever lies behind you and whatever lies in front of you is of little importance compared to what makes up your character. And I ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that the content of your character and your growing, deepening, fruit-bearing relationship with God is in fact what really matters? Do you believe that the content of our character as a faith community and our growing, deepening, fruit-bearing relationship with God is what really matters? As I prepared my message this morning, I felt I would be remiss in not acknowledging the terrible events that have gone on this past week in our human community, particularly those in Baton Rouge, in Minnesota, in Denver, or in Dallas. These events are heartbreaking, perhaps most especially because we know that they represent much deeper issues and that they are not the only incidents of their kind that we can call easily to mind. Cell phone videos and social media and the internet are increasingly bringing us face to face with the darkness that really does seem to exercise some degree of authority in our world. At times, it seems there's almost no place out of its reach. A school, a movie theater, a skyscraper, an airport, the finish line of a, mar a marathon, a police car, even a church. I don't have to tell you that countless news reports and articles and blogs and Facebook posts and tweets and conversations have tried again this week to make sense of the darkness that seems so active, at times so pervasive in our world. God has transferred us out from under the authority of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus where we find redemption and forgiveness. These are nice words, right? But what are we supposed to do with that in the face of all this darkness? Just about a week ago, the great writer and Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel passed from this world and into the arms of God, and I noticed this week that someone posted a quote of his on Facebook. It said, we must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. End quote. And so we are faced with a choice. In our tale of two cities this morning, which city do we choose to emulate? Will we be the stubborn Israelites, so deeply addicted to our systems of injustice and oppression that, however crooked they might be, we refuse to hear the voices of the prophets of our time? Will we turn a deaf ear to the Elijahs and the Elishas and the Amoses until the consequences are fully upon us? Or will we emulate the Colossian community following a pattern of living out God's love 
for humanity in tangible and consistent day-to-day -day ways, growing in grace and knowledge of God so that we might be a community of great strength and endurance. I suggest to you this morning that both of these realities are part of our human story. We do see the consequences of our failure to do the things that lead to peace. As a human community, we do experience the tragic and painful consequences of greed, injustice, dishonesty, and prejudice. But we also see shining examples of what it looks like when communities come together in love, support one another, and work to eliminate prejudice and injustice. We see God at work in these ways every time, and it happens right here in this community, every time people lift their voices against human trafficking or racial profiling or gender discrimination. There is hope all around us when individuals and communities make the daily choices that make for peace. Are we making those daily choices that lead to peace? Are we taking time to examine our own hearts, both individually and as a community, and find the habits or biases that might need to change? Are we valuing each other every day with our words and our actions? Are we making room in this community for people who do not look or think the way that we do? We have an opportunity to witness to the light every day, even in the face of darkness. And in the face of that darkness, we must return to what we know, that God loves each and every one of us, that we are called to live out that love in just the same way that we've received it, and that in doing good work, we can and will bear fruit and grow in the strength that leads to endurance. We cannot remain silent and we are not neutral. Jesus took the side of the oppressed and the tormented and we know in our hearts that we are called to do the same in whatever small way we are able. Ultimately though, we always stand on the side of love. Amen. <laughs>